If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Philippians chapter 4, we are continuing our series in Philippians that we've entitled To Live is Christ. And of course, now it's been a couple weeks, we took a little bit of a break from that because of Advent, but now we're diving back in. So just a, just a brief refresher on where we've been real quick. Paul, in the first three chapters, has basically told us about the glories of the gospel, about the glories of who Jesus is, and what he has done to, to accomplish our redemption in Christ. And then Paul has told us how we're supposed to live in light of that. That's basically summing up the first three chapters in a very, uh, very brief, concise form. And now in chapter 4, Paul comes here, he gives us really his final exhortations here, and it's really verses 1 through 9, these exhortations that we're going to be focusing on the next couple of weeks on how they are to agree. They're to stand firm in the Lord, and they do that by agreeing in the Lord, and then rejoicing in the Lord, and then meditating on the beauties of the Lord. Today, we're going to deal specifically with verses 1 through 3 in what Paul says about agreeing in the Lord. And so if you found your place, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to go back to actually... Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, to kind of set a little bit of the context for us. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Beginning in Philippians 3, verse 20, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Now in the chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, <clears throat> I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for your glorious word to us. And Lord, we confess our neediness. Lord, we confess that we are slow of hearing. And we can't really understand your word unless you give us the understanding. So help us, Lord, and help me, Lord, uh, to preach this, this word by the Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Let every word that's spoken be, be true and be edifying to your body. In Jesus' name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. What is the most dangerous threat to the church? That's a pretty loaded question. And then you know, we can look around at, uh, at government-sponsored persecution. I, already, I prayed about that. In the pastoral prayer, this persecution, government-sponsored, that befalls many of our dear brothers and sisters in places like China and Africa and the Middle East. Uh, you know, buildings are destroyed. Christians are harassed. Christians lose their jobs. Uh, Christians are imprisoned. And yes, Christians are even killed. Yet, by God's power and by His grace, the church marches on in those very places very often which we're thankful to God for. Now, we may be thinking, well, that's in those other places, and that's true, that is in those other places, and we certainly haven't experienced anything near that kind of persecution, but I would say, get ready. 
I would say that the storm clouds are on the horizon. And I say that for many different, uh, many different reasons. The, uh, the storm clouds of persecution are, I think, are going to soon befall the church here in America and in the West. Uh, particularly when we think about the advent of Marxist philosophy that had shown itself, both in terms of, the, of economic theory, but also what we would call cultural Marxism that's showing itself in such things as critical race theory and, and other things like that. And then we see the LGBTQ agenda. All these things that have immersed universities and social and news media. And soon, if you didn't know, if you haven't been paying attention, there's going to be laws because elections have consequences, there will be laws that will force everyone to include religious institutions to acquiesce. And if not, you're going to face litigation, and you will lose. That's what's coming down the pipe. That's what's on the horizon for us. But here's the good news. As real as all of those threats are, Jesus told us that such things are the norm. That's to be expected. He tells us the world is going to love you. No, no, wait, no. The world's going to hate you, and the world's going to persecute you. That's what he tells us. That's the promise in Scripture. That's the unusual thing, really, is what we experience here in our country. And the New Testament is clear that the greatest threat to the church is not so much external to the church as it is internal to the church, internal in the form of false teachings that infiltrate the church, and then the dissension and the disunity that threatens to tear the church apart. These are the things that are really of the deepest concern to, to the Apostle Paul and to the other New Testament writers. And as we come to our text today, it frankly, verses 1 through 3, it's really easy for us to kind of say, well, let me just breeze past this this passage here, this whole business about Iodia and Syntyche, these hard-to-pronounce Greek names, and let me get to the really good stuff. We heard the good stuff about Jesus, his exalted glory, how he's come down to heaven, he died a death at the cross, and now I want to hear about rejoice in the Lord and, and, and don't be anxious for anything. Let's get to that stuff. It's easy for us to kind of graze past these verses here, but we it's a huge mistake to do that. Because I think this passage is placed here, obviously it is, by the Holy Spirit strategically here, and it's, it's absolutely crucial what Paul says, and it's really a key reason for why Paul has written this letter in the first place. We recall that this church in this Greek city of Philippi is a very good church. Paul commends them in chapter 1. This is a good church. It was a great church, and they were facing tremendous opposition from outside. They were experiencing persecution. But Paul is deeply concerned about the internal strife that threatened to make them ineffective in their witness and that would actually tear them apart. So later, earlier, he's already addressed some of these things. And then now, he tells them, in light of the fact that you are citizens of heaven, united to Christ, he now exhorts them to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord and agree in the Lord. And stand firm in the Lord, agree, and then rejoice and set your mind on the beauties and excellencies of who Jesus is. But today, it's stand firm by agreeing in the Lord. And so the main idea is, as citizens of heaven in union with Christ, we must stand firm in the Lord, 
by agreeing in the Lord. Three things I want us to look at this morning related to this. First of all, we must stand firm in the Lord. In verse 1, we notice how Paul begins here. He begins with the word, therefore. And of course, we know what that means. It means we need to look back to what Paul has already told us. This verse here, verse 1, is like a hinge between what Paul has already told us before and what he's about to tell us moving forward. And this word here, the immediate context, is a reference to everything that Paul has told them. The immediate context is chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now to give you a summary of that so we can kind of get our bearings here, when you look back at chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, we see where Paul says that that really the only spiritual resume that will justify us before a holy God is the resume of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And that perfect resume of the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is required by God, perfect righteousness, that's only found in Christ alone, that resume becomes your resume when God, by His grace, raises you from spiritual death to spiritual life, enables you, gives you the gifts of saving faith and repentance, and enables you now to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ. And you do that, and you're forgiven of all your sins and declared righteous in Christ because His righteousness now is credited to your account. And so we see then Paul's point there in the first few verses of chapter 3 is that it's not Jesus plus my works, therefore salvation. It's Jesus Christ and his works alone, therefore salvation. We trust in Christ alone and his works. And so we repent of our, of our sins and we also repent of our righteousness, of the good things that we're trying to trust in to get us to heaven, which are like filthy rags before a holy God. And then as those who are united to Christ, we are, as Paul says, as we read earlier, citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven now, united to Christ, we, Paul says, strain forward for the prize at the end of time of knowing Christ in all of his glory as we await his return to deliver us from the very presence of sin itself. And so in the background here, Paul, that's, that's what's in the background here of, of the gospel is in the background. With, with the gospel now of who we are in Christ clearly in the background, Paul now speaks of his deep affection for them. Notice he says how he, he loves them. I love my, my brothers, you know, family language. My brothers whom I love and long for. This takes us back to chapter 1. Chapter, fun, he talk, chapter 1, he talks about how they... Talked about their partnership, this deep familial bond that they had together in the Spirit. And he talked about how, this, how he yearned for them with the affection of Christ. That's how much he loves them. And he goes back and he's, he's going back to that again. How He talks about how he loves them and yearns for them. These were his spiritual children that, by God, that God, by his sovereign grace, birthed through Paul's ministry. And Paul here, he's filled with love and joy, and he calls them his crown. Well, what, what does that mean? Why does he call him a crown? Well, the crown here is a reference to people back in the ancient days when they would run races. They, the, the, the person who won the race would, would have a wreath put on his head. And so Paul is basically saying here, he's saying that you all are my beloved trophies of grace that God has enabled me to win for Christ. So he's just lavishing them with affection here, telling them how much, showing them how much he loves them. And it's out of that love that he gives the appeal. 
And the appeal is, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Now, again, Paul is really repeating himself, telling him, telling him something that he told him in chapter 1. And this word, this language here for stand firm in the Lord is military language. The same exhortation that he gave them in chapter 1, verse 27. When you go back to chapter 1, verse 27, Paul tells them to stand firm in one spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened by anything by your opponents. So you say, stand firm in the Lord. You're united to Christ. You're united to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're now together. You, now, you are fellow combatants. You are in the army of the Lord. So stand firm. You are, as we used to say in the military, you're, you're a band of brothers and sisters fighting the good fight of faith. And nothing matters except the mission. That's how it is in the military. In the military, it's about the mission. Everything you do is about the mission. How is this going to affect the mission? What should we do to make it so we can accomplish the mission? It's all about the mission. And unity is absolutely crucial to accomplish the mission. Absolutely crucial. And it's crucial to survival on the battlefield. You've got to be united. You have to be. The old saying's true, isn't it? United we stand, divided we fall. And the same is true spiritually. It's true in the church. Paul alluded to in chapter 1. He makes clear in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, you remember that chapter, where Paul talks about this, how we are involved in this titanic struggle, spiritual war, spiritual warfare against the, the powers and principalities of darkness. And we need to understand that the Great Commission the gospel proclamation, the fact that we say that we want to go and make disciples of all the nations, the fact that we say we want to see people grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, the fact that we say we want to preach the gospel to every creature is a, a declaration of war against the forces of hell. That's war. And the devil is ready to set all of his weapons against the church because of that. He says, oh yeah? Let's fight. Let's fight. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, well, what are you going to do? The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he will to devour. We, it's these powers and principalities, and they're, they're set. They, they want to see the church destroyed. They're going to do everything they can to destroy the church. What are you going to do? Paul says in Ephesians 6, we must be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Or as Paul says here, we must stand firm in the Lord. You see the connection. You see the similarity of what Paul is saying. Stand firm in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of His might. Don't stand firm in your own strength. Don't stand firm in your own wisdom. Don't stand firm in your programs and in your spiritual gifts. 
but stand firm in the Lord. Rest in His power. Rest in His strength. Rest in His might and in His wisdom because the battle belongs to the Lord. We can't fight the battle in our own strength. The moment we do, we're going to get chewed up and spit out. And the way we do this, Paul says in Ephesians 6, is that we've got to put on the full armor of God. Well, how do I fight the battle? How do I stand strong in the Lord and the power of His might? And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, he, he points to the, the whole armor of God, the armor of God. Having your, having your waist fastened with the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and your, sho your shoes for feet, having put on the, the readiness given by the gospel of peace and taking up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times. See? All this, this, the, this heavenly armor ultimately is all about Christ. We're putting on Christ. We're, we're, we're focusing our gaze upon Him and resting in Him and in His power. That's what Paul said. You've got to be equipped in Christ. You've got to put on Christ. You've got to put on that armor every single day so that you can stand, Paul says in Ephesians 6, against the schemes of the devil. Schemes. Sinister strategies and tactics that are employed by Satan to discredit Christians to destroy Christians, to bring about this unity in the body with a view to tearing it apart. That's what's happening behind the scenes right now, brothers and sisters. See? That's what's going on every single day in your life. That's why we need each other. That's why the church is so important. That's why the means of grace, the armor of God, His Word and prayer and the fellowship of believers is so absolutely crucial. And one of the schemes to bring about this unity in the body, or the schemes of the devil, is, is to bring this, bring this unity into the body to tear it apart. And so we have to recognize that and stand firm in the Lord. How? How do we stand firm in the Lord? Well, we use those things that God has given us, the means of grace, but also, this takes us to the second point. Here he says... We must agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Verse 2, I entreat, I plead, I beg. That's what he's saying. I plead with Eodia. I plead with Syntyche. Agree. Agree in the Lord. Paul here, he, he calls attention to the reasons for the disunity of Philippi. And it was this conflict between these two women, Yodia and Syntyche. Some people might say, well, you know, he's writing this letter to the church. It's a public letter. It would be read to the whole congregation. And here he's, he's calling these women out by name. That's kind of rude for him to do that. And really, it's not. In the ancient culture here, what Paul is doing is really an expression of friendship. In the ancient world, the commentators tell us that when they would write letters, they, they would leave the names of their enemies out very often to, to, to discredit them. Here, Paul, everybody knows, though, what's going on. And, here, and Paul expresses his, what he really feels about Iodia and Syntyche, doesn't he? Look at what he says. He says that these are ones in verse 3, that their names are written in the book of life. These are believers. 
These are Christians. Their names, like every other believer in Christ, has by God's sovereign grace alone been logged with the indelible ink of Christ's blood into what one commentator says, the registry book of those whose citizenship is in heaven. They are dearly beloved children of God. And Paul has deep respect for them. That's what he says. They labored. They toiled. This word is toiled. Side by side with him in the cause of the gospel. They were fellow soldiers fighting the good fight of faith to bring the gospel to a lost world in, a, in an incredibly hostile environment. I thought about you know, what to call them. I thought about they were, they were fellow soldiers, they were fellow combatants, these, these strong women of faith. <laughs> the, 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 th- the term that came to my mind was that they were gospel warrior princesses for Christ. <laughs> That'd make a great t-shirt, wouldn't it? <laughs> what are you? I'm a gospel warrior princess. Well, you ladies. <laughs> if you guys are saying that, that's trouble. We're going to have to talk a little later. <laughs> but that's what they were. They were warriors for Christ. And just, I just want a, a word here of application and a word here in terms of uh, the role of women in the church. Well, obviously, that's a very loaded topic, isn't it? It's a very controversial topic, and I don't have time, obviously, to, to spend uh, dealing in depth with that. But what I want to say about it is this. There's some key points we need to understand. I think it comes out here in this text a little bit, and that is this. Men and women are both created in God's image and are equal in nature. Same value, same dignity before the Lord. And God has called women, you know, he's, he's given us men and women different roles in the home and in the church, and he has called women to serve him with the gifts that he has given them. And we need to understand that women are just as valuable and crucial to the mission as men are. And a church that ignores that does so to its own peril. And I thank all of the gospel warrior princesses in our church for how you are using your gifts to serve the Lord. It's been evident these past Olive Street's been in existence. Think of all of the women who have walked in the faith, strong women of faith, who have been side by side in the cause of the gospel, striving side by side in the cause of the gospel to see the gospel go forth. I want to encourage you to keep using your gifts for the good of others and the glory of God. It is deeply appreciated. And you can see the appreciation that Paul has for Iodia and Syntyche. Dear sisters in Christ, warriors for Christ, fellow combatants, in bringing the gospel to the world. Yet despite all of that, these ones who were in the trenches together, somewhere along the way, they, they lost the unity that once existed among them in the gospel. And it needs to be resolved. It needs to be resolved, first of all, because it's not good for them individually. Because you know what happens when you have, you're at odds with somebody. There's a whole lot of things that happen in your heart. Bitterness, anger, things percolate, and it just becomes corrosive to us spiritually. But then you see what happens is in the body of Christ, what happens is people go, and they'll maybe go to Yodia or Syntyche, or go to Yodia. So what's going on with you and Syntyche? And you know how we are. We're very good. We're good 
defense attorneys for ourselves. And we have a way of minimizing our sin and magnifying the faults of others. And so you can imagine, Yodi, what's going on? Well, you know, Synthike did this, and yeah, I did this, but the reason I did that was because she said that. And then you go to Synthike, yeah, but the reason I did that was because she did this. And you can see how it goes back and forth. And then what happens is people in the church, they start picking sides. Well, I'm on team Yodia. Oh, yeah, well, I'm on team Synthike. Okay, well, we're going to wear red shirts. No, we wanted to wear red shirts. You guys got to wear the blue shirts. But whatever the case is, you get the point. You see that how quickly that this could be like a cancer that would move through the church as people would take sides. And so Paul says, this has to stop. I beg you. But notice, he doesn't just single one of them out. They're both, it seems, at fault because he entreats, he pleads, he begs each one of them by name to agree in the Lord. Now, this word for agree in the Lord here is used in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says, be of the same mind. We have a, a passage here. We'll put the passage on the screen because we're going to have to deal with this. Paul, I think, is going back to this passage here. The nature of the conflict, we don't know the details, but it likely has to do with what Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 2 through 5. And we see what he says here. You know, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. It's just agree in the Lord. Having the same love. Being in full accord. Agree in the Lord. And then look what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. And so... It seems that Iodia and Syntyche have fallen short of these things right here. Maybe one of them or maybe all of them. At the very least, they didn't have the mind of Christ that Paul's going to say in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. They weren't walking in humility toward one another. And so Paul says, agree in the Lord. And notice it's agree in the Lord. Again, focusing their attention on what? Focusing their attention on this incredible union that they have with Christ, the Prince of, Pre the Prince of Peace. Right? Agree in Him. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you were apart from Christ. You were alienated from Him. You were enemies of God. But now what has happened? You've been reconciled to him because of his work on the cross for you. And now by his grace, he's united you to him. He's made you sisters in Christ. Right? And so now you have to exercise this Christ-like mindset of humility that is actually yours right now in Christ. That Christ-like mindset of humility where Christ laid aside his rights and made himself nothing and died the death of the cross to reconcile you to the Lord. Agree. How can you not? You must be reconciled, in other words. And we need to understand here a couple points of application. The issue isn't whether Christians can honestly disagree with each other about things. Right? So we're never supposed to have a disagreement? Well, no, Christians 
You get 10 Christians together and you can talk about any number of topics and you have 10 different opinions, right? You know, you talk about politics or schooling, you know, well, do we homeschool? Do we send our kids to Christian school? Do we send our kids to public school? And there's all kinds of opinions about that. And people have very good reasons for, why, for each one of those things. And they disagree about those things. Uh-oh. Mass. <laughs> Christians disagree about mass. And here's the, here's the thing. Here's a sad thing. And I'm so thankful it doesn't happen. It's not happening here. But there are churches that are really struggling with the mask issue to the point where they're, they're dividing over it. That's really sad. But that's what happens. There's, there's, there's going to be disagreements. So we need to be able to discuss those differences of opinion. The question, though, is how? How do we discuss those differences of opinion? Well, with grace, with patience. We ask the question, maybe if we're talking about those different issues, does, does Scripture inform my opinion about these things? And even if it does, and we, we should try to find a biblical basis for every, everything we're trying to think about, but even if it does, the next question is, does my response conform to Scripture? When I disagree with somebody, somebody, how am I coming across? Am I abrasive? Am I judgmental? Am I hateful? Am I condemning over a secondary issue that ultimately doesn't make a whole, doesn't rise to the level of importance as the gospel? I might have a biblically informed opinion, but how I state that opinion must be biblical as well is the point. So are we gracious and respectful? Am I willing to listen to the other side? And willing to modify or change my opinion if it's clear that my view needs modification? Or God forbid, I was actually wrong. <laughs> Well, we hate saying that word, don't we? I was wrong. See, it's okay. I was wrong. We can say it. Just a little practice. Are we willing to change? So we shouldn't allow disagreement to cause division, is the point here, over what I'll call secondary issues. Secondary issues. Now, there are things, though, that there are going to be disagreements about that will cause division. What are those things? Well, I love what one ancient writer said. We don't know exactly who said it, but he says this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, there has to be unity. What are the essentials of the Christian faith? Right? That's where we have to have unity around. That's where there can't be any disagreement on who is God, the triune God of heaven and earth. Who is Jesus? And what did Jesus do to accomplish our redemption? What is the gospel? How is a person made right before a holy God? There can't be disagreement on that. There has to be agreement. And in that case, we would say, yes, doctrine does divide, necessarily divides. The truth does divide, and we have to stand firm on that belief. We can't move from that. We can't mess around with that. And if somebody says, well, I don't like that, so I'm leaving here, it's like, well, I'm sorry, that's, we wish you well, but this is what we're, we're standing upon the truth of the gospel. And in essentials, we have to have unity in those things, but in non-essentials, those things that just, in the end of the day, really aren't that important. Well, let me put it this way. Maybe they are important, but they don't rise to that level. We don't divide over. So, for example, on the, on the issue of, of schooling, 
important issue, but I'm not going to divide with my brother and sister over that issue. Or we think in doctrinal, doctrinal terms. You know, listen, in our church here, we, we, uh, we have different doctor, doctrinal beliefs than our Baptist friends don't agree with us on different things. But we're not going to divide from them in the sense of not fellowshipping with them anymore because they don't agree with us on these particular issues. We're united in the gospel. And so we're not going to divide on that. And he says, in all things charity, in all things love. All things love. And in Yodi and Syndicate's case, they were not, he doesn't condemn them because they were denying an essential truth of the gospel. No, these were gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, you know, gospel-witnessing, affirming women. Like, if you were to sit them down and give them a test on theology, they'd probably blow a lot of us away. They knew their stuff. They weren't moving from the gospel. But they were allowing other things that, while maybe important, should never have been allowed to divide them. The issue was not theological, but it was relational. Or we could say it was theological in this sense, is that they weren't living consistently with their theology, the theology of the gospel that tells them, listen, I can't be at odds with my brother and sister without working towards reconciliation. And that's what they were, that's what they were doing. And it was spilling over into the rest of the church. And so I love this quote here on the slide. While believers may debate issues that do not touch the heart of the gospel, they may not do so in an overly contentious, that, that is, argumentative manner that denies the peace our Savior has brought to his people. This was the lesson, I would say, among others, that Yodi and Syntyche needed to learn. And that we all need to learn. Listen, you're, you be in, you, if you're in the church long enough, you know, you're going to have, there's going to be, you're going to get into an argument with somebody at some point. Things are going to happen because you're, you're in close proximity to each other. Not during COVID, but, <laughs> but even with safe spacing, we'll find ways to be at odds with each other. Social distancing, whatever. And so they both were at fault and they needed to agree in the Lord. They needed to have the mind of Christ, right? But how would that work itself out in their conflict? How does it work itself out in their lives? And how does it work itself out in your life when you have conflict? And you can talk about people in church or just talk about people in your, in your household, the church that's in your home, the little mini church, so to speak. How does, this, how does it work? How do you deal with conflict? How does that Christ-like mindset of humility work itself out? Well, first of all, it would mean that each one would be, would be willing to lay aside their glory. Be willing to lay aside their rights and their privileges, to step down, to relinquish whatever they have a right to for the sake of the other. Because that's what Jesus did. Isn't that what he did? That's what, that's what Paul says in chapter 2. Right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to grasp, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. We've got to put our self, our, our selfishness to death. Who takes the first step in that? Both. <laughs> both. If both take the first step, now you're moving toward each other. Next, uh, each one must be willing to acknowledge and turn from their sin. 
That's easier said than done, isn't it? Well, you know, John, just turn, acknowledge your sin and turn from it. That's easy to say until I'm actually confronted having to do that. And it's, it's harder than it sounds because of pride. Because we have a hard time acknowledging our sin. I remember I was confronting a young, a young man about his sin one time. And I shared the testimony that others had about the situation. And I was prepared to, to hear him offer his defense. I thought, okay, surely I want to tell him about his sin. And he's going to say, well, listen, that's what they say. But let me tell you why I said this. Let me tell you why I did that. Here's what happened here. But the testimony was overwhelming. So I was fully expecting to hear that, but here's what I heard. Instead of that, I heard him say, well, yeah, you're right. (laughs) They're right. I've sinned that way, and I need to change. And I got to tell you, I was shocked. I was ready to fall. I, I stood there speechless, like, so you know you have to turn from your sin, right? And acknowledge. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, I agree. I, I agree. I, I did that. I need, to, I need to. Yeah, but you know, you need to. <laughs> right? He totally stole my thunder because I was totally prepared for him to, to give a defense, and he doesn't give a defense, and I'm ready to push back against the defense. And I'm like, well, now what do I do? Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> praise the Lord. I'm glad that you saw that. Let's rejoice and let's see how we can go about working on that repentance and everything like that. So I was totally surprised. because, And the reason I was surprised was that's not the norm. It's not the norm with us. It's just not. Sin deceives us. It distorts. It blinds us. We are Experts, you know, Jesus talked about don't reach for the speck in your brother's eyes. You know, you got to pull the log out of your. We're we're experts at seeing the specks. We're 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 great at being speck finders and forgetting we got huge logs coming out of our own eyes. And so we need to stand firm in the Lord by agreeing in the Lord. But that can be hard for us, can it? It can be hard. It is hard. It's not can be. It is hard especially when you're at odds with somebody. And so sometimes we need help. We need brothers and sisters in Christ who can help us see our own sin and then point us to Christ and help bring about reconciliation. That takes us to the third point. We must help those who need it to reconcile. Verse 3, yes, Paul says, I ask you, true companion, help these women. Paul appeals to someone called true companion. And this word, true companion, it means yoked with. And so commentators aren't sure, is Paul talking about a particular person, and the person's name is uh, Sinzagas? <laughs> Say that fast ten times. <laughs> right? He has Synthike and Sinzagas. Or others think it's the whole congregation as a whole. These were partners with, with, with Paul in the gospel. They had this bond in Christ. They were one in Christ, and he's written this letter to this congregation as a whole. Maybe it's both them. Maybe there's a particular leader in the church he's appealing to, and of course that's going to involve others in the church who know what's going on. And so here, you need to go and help these women. And help here is the word, it's to seize, to arrest, take hold, take hold of them. In other words, listen, you've got to be proactive. You've got to really be diligent and get a hold of these women and bring them together. And we see here, really, the essence, the importance, and really the gift of what church membership is all about. 
right? Yodi and Syntyche were not islands unto themselves. Well, you know, I had this beef with her, so I'm out of here. I'm taking my ball and going home. No. They knew that I'm, this, is my, this is my church body. I'm accountable to this body. And that body was accountable to them and was, was, was charged with working for their good to see reconciliation come about. The, the body was invested in them. They're invested in each other. And they needed to work together for reconciliation and peace so that unity in the body could be preserved. So Paul says, help them. We need to realize that we're up against a very powerful enemy, the enemy of sin and Satan, and we can't fight them in our, on, on our own. We just can't. I said a few weeks ago that sin is about the exaltation of self. We are all infected with the, the virus of i me I, 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 me, 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 right? And that virus of i me is on, is rages, it's kicked in the overdrive when there's conflict. And we all dig in our heels and we exalt ourselves. We defend ourselves. It's all about that. And what it does is it causes us to be spec finders and, and log ignorers and deniers. It, it magnifies the faults and offenses of others. And it even turns somebody's virtue into a vice. Right? That's what jealousy is all about. Even the good things, we look at somebody and go, well, yeah, I can do it better. <laughs> or whatever. Or they're not as good as so-and-so. It gives false perceptions of others. So many things, so many conflicts happen in the church, in your marriage, in your friendships, whatever. It's based on perceptions. Well, you know, he said this, and we take it the wrong way, and then we build an entire narrative around that one little thing, or a little look even. He looked at me funny. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but it's true. And we, we build things based on false perceptions. And it causes us to minimize, rationalize, justify, or just blind us altogether to our own faults. And so we need help to be able to see clearly. Clearly, We have God's word, we have prayer, but we also desperately need the church. The church is a means of grace that God has given us, a gift that he's given us for our own spiritual growth and benefit. It's there in the church where others who know us well can speak honestly and then confront us in terms of our sin. What was my role in this? Where have I fallen short? What was my reaction? How can I make this right? But listen to this. The church isn't just about pointing out my sin in these instances. Where did I fall short? It's also about confronting me with the healing bomb of the gospel. We see that here, Paul has told them to stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord, and how they all have their names written in the book of life. Right? You see the emphasis? Stand firm in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Your names are written in the book of life. In other words, gospel. Think of the gospel. At one time, you all, like all of us, were at odds with God, alienated from him. You were enemies, his enemies. You deserved nothing but the unmitigated Righteous wrath of a holy God, but out of his sheer love and undeserved grace, Christ, the eternal Son, the Prince of Peace, brought himself down from the highest depths, sunk himself down to the, to the lowest depths of shame to die on the cross, where Isaiah says, Surely, 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We who were his enemies have been reconciled now through the blood of Christ. And he calls us now to do what? To be ministers of reconciliation. Not just to the world out there, although that's the primary reference that 2 Corinthians 5 has, but also we see here within the church. We need to do it here as well. I love this quote here on the slide. The, the adhesive for their unity which makes reconciliation between Yodia and Synthicae so imperative is the mercy that God has shown them in the gift of his Son. And so, dear friends, we must stand firm in the Lord by agreeing in the Lord. And that all assumes one very crucial thing. That you're actually in the Lord. If you're not in the Lord, that means that you are estranged from God. But Christ has come to reconcile us to God through His perfect life, death, and bodily resurrection from the dead. And He calls out to you today, if you never have, be reconciled to God. Turn from your sin. Place all of your hope in Christ, the Prince of Peace, so that the war, your war with God, is over. And you're brought into sweet fellowship and communion, and you who were his enemy are now going to be called his child. And for the rest of us, this passage is crucial for us to reflect upon as a church. Brothers and sisters, we must be vigilant. Satan wants to rip us apart. I'll just tell you, listen, I'm prejudiced in this regard. We have a great church. But we have to be vigilant. And you guys had it going on before I even got here. <laughs> so the Lord has done an amazing work. A tight-knit community. But you have to be on guard. Satan wants to destroy this church. Every gospel preaching church, he wants to destroy, he wants to bring about disunity. So we need to, I want you to ask yourself, is there someone that you're at odds with? Is there? And if so, go and get it right. And if you need help, let us know. Come to me, one of the elders. We'll be glad to, to help. And finally, let us remember that Christ is the solid rock upon which we must stand, not merely for our initial justification before God, but also for our living out of the Christian life. You've got to stand on Christ. So let us stand firm on Him. Let us rejoice that by God's grace alone, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life in the indelible ink of the blood of Christ, the Prince of Peace, who has reconciled you to God. Let us rest in His power and grace in this ministry of reconciliation that He has given to us. As we go about doing that, resting in His power and keeping our eyes fixed on Him the author and finisher of our faith. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace toward us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us into union with you. And then, Father, uh, uniting us to one another, brothers and sisters, united to Christ, united to one another, family of God. And now, Lord, I pray that you work in us powerfully that we would maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen.